Okay, Dave, thanks for stopping by. First of all, <clears throat> I want everyone who's listening to this realize that um, we have an interesting character on today. Um, you probably are familiar with the band Blur, okay? Critics called them the the Nirvana, okay, of, of over... Am I right by that? Like, weren't you like the other Nirvana, Dave? No, I, I've never heard that before, but... Uh... I don't know. We've been called an, an awful lot of things over our time, so uh, who knows? But nobody's ever mentioned anything to do with Nirvana. Really? Okay, but I mean, but Dave, I mean, you don't think like a lot of people kind of when they saw that video came out of song number two, you don't think people kind of had any comparisons that way? You, you don't like you're kind of like. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I suppose. That one particular song, yeah, I don't, it's not really typical of the Blur canon, I don't think. So um, if you just knew us by that song, you might think that, yeah, we are that kind of band. But actually, we're, what we do is, is much more varied than that. No, you're right. I mean, you you are. That's probably the song people most know you as. But yeah, you definitely have a, a, a wide variety catalog of songs. But also, Dave, I just want, you know, people to understand that, you know, you started out as a drummer or actually, you know, that's what people known you as, as a drummer. But yeah. you also, you know, I mean, you 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 have been involved in film and TV, podcasting, a light aircraft pilot, lawyer, former labor counselor, and you still think you haven't done enough. Yeah, I'm kind of endlessly ambitious, really, which is unfortunate because it means I'm never going to be quite satisfied with whatever it is I'm doing. But uh, it does mean I have an interesting life. My mum once said, you've, I don't know, you've clearly led an exciting life, and I can't argue with that. But yeah, I, um, I, I do do a big variety of things. I'm very involved with the Labour Party in the UK. I, I'm a light aeroplane instructor these days. Um, I have... Uh, worked as a criminal defense lawyer i've worked as an animator i've done all kinds of things you know you mentioned that you're part of the labor party i mean when you started out as a band it seemed that politics was separated from music right and today politics at least in america drives everything yeah it goes through phases in the UK, you know, being being fashionable and unfashionable to talk about music and, you know, to talk about politics in your music. Certainly around the time of Billy Bragg, it was very fashionable and the Manic Street Preachers were big on politics. A blur have never been an overtly political band in our songs, so we're all, we're all political people. Um, but yeah, we've, we've been through a crazy time recently in politics in the UK and the US. I think it's only going to get crazier. Personally, I think it will get crazier before it gets better. But things have come to a head and much of the craziness certainly in the UK was driven by the GRU, Russia's, you know, external security services, pumping money into kind of uh, divisive causes and amplifying divisive voices. I think they're otherwise engaged at the moment. So uh, things seem to have gone slightly quieter. So things are calming down. I, well, temporarily, but personally, I think they'll, I think they'll get better before they get worse. I don't think that the, I don't think the far right is done. You know, you only have to look at what's going on in, in the, 
recent elections in the states to see there's still a vast appetite for uh, for those kind of voices and for those kind of conspiracies in the uk the the conspiracy voices are still loud they're still parliamentarians kind of uh, willing to be anti-vax and to be uh, pro-putin uh, making outlandish statements you know they're they're British MPs so none of this has gone away quite I, I know it's kind of a a almost impossible probably uh it, it's a hard question because it, it may be irrelevant but let's say if you started the band blur today this is just hypothetical mm. do you think if you started the band today you'd probably more be politically driven as a band, you mean the songs? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I, I, because we're, as a band, we're four different people. You know, we don't have one political view. There isn't a blur political stance. Each individual has their own, their own brand of politics, just as everybody does in the world. So, you know, and so I don't think we would ever be that band, that band that campaigns for the Labour Party or campaigns against the Labour Party or, you know, the Greens or whatever. It makes sense. So basically what you're saying is the members of the of your band, they don't share all the exact same worldview. I doubt you could find any four people that do, to be honest. You could probably find four people that said they do, but you'd have to go into the band willing to subscribe to that kind of thing, wouldn't it? Be like joining a political party or something. You'd have to be willing to sign up to a shared political view to, for that to be sustainable in the long term. I think. I agree. You know, let's talk about probably something that you're going to be talking about for the rest of your life is your the biggest song that your band had, and that's be, that became a worldwide smash, is song number two. Um, is it true? Did that song come about basically, was based on a record label? Is that right? A music label? No, not really. Not, I don't know. I've never heard that story. I mean, how it came about was the, the the same way that most songs come about. Really, we David brought a demo of an idea, a demo in, and we thrashed it out, thrashed it out together. And in that, in the case of that song, we thrashed it out in a rehearsal room. Normally, we just thrash it out in the studio. Um, that was a special one in that ev everything came together very quickly. Um, ordinarily, you you try ideas and they don't work and you go up blind alleys and you know eventually you manage to steer the thing into the place where it needs to be song two we all had some ideas coming into the studio and they all worked straight away well that was unusual so there's a kind of freshness to the recording because people are just trying out their idea and it's worked you know um it's called song two because uh we had a whiteboard on the studio wall with all of the demos that we were trying to work up into finished recordings and as um, you know there's a, a row for each song and then a column for each of the uh, jobs we had to do on it you know, do the drums do the bass do the guitars do the vocals backing vocals and we tick those columns off as we got there and as the vocals got written uh, we'd rub off the, uh, the the placeholder name which was song one song two song three song four song five and uh, write in the actual song name. Well, song two um, just had Damon's uh, vocal, Damon's temp vocals on, which they all do. Damon's very good at sort of singing random syllables that sound a bit like words, and he often uses those to base his actual words on. So it's, ooh, they shiny, marvelous, ooh, ding, ding. 
Sure. And, uh, and when he wrote some words for song two, we came back to came back to put them on, and it, it sounded hopeless. Sounded didn't have any of the energy of the original recording, um, and uh, he just couldn't he just couldn't recapture that spirit. Um, which is often very elusive, that spirit that you get when you've just recorded something for the first time. You're just putting the idea down. It's very exciting. That comes across in the playing and in the singing. So he couldn't get he couldn't get his new vocals to sound any good at all. So he just scrapped it. And so what's on there is by and large the uh, nonsense lyrics of the uh, of the demo recording. And because it they're not you know didn't end up being about anything in particular. Didn't end up getting a name. It just stayed song two and that is the history of song two in a nutshell i think he did i think he did change some of the individual words you know ch change some of the syllables to make actual words so it did sound a little more like it was actually english but by and large i think it's still gibberish was there ever a thought when you wrote song two i mean obviously right you never knew it would have this magnitude of success, right? You never really kind of counted on that. I always think they're all going to be have that magnitude of success. When we finish every song, it sounds like a hit to me. I'm always gobsmacked that some of them end up on B sides. It's like unbelievable. So okay, that's great. Um, so you you believe that like that's I love the confidence. Like because a lot of artists are like, I I never imagined, I could never imagine having this song do, but you're like, no, nah, our music, like we believe in it. That's so if you if you actually knew before song two would have this magnitude of success, like would you have changed the title of the song? By the way, I love the title of the song, song one, song two. It's unique, it's different. But when it comes to like marketing things, it's like, oh, we we need a, a more memorable song. Yeah. I think that's true in the States, you know, there are our, our record label in the States at the time tried to get us to change the name of the American release to the Woohoo song, because that's what people were asking for in the record shops. And that's what people were ringing up the radio stations asking for. Can you play the Woohoo song? We, of course, thought that was an unbelievable imposition and dilution of our art. And so uh, we resisted that. We probably have sold a million records. Have we, uh, have we given into that though? But I don't know, you know, Fundamentally, you have to do what the song is asking you to do. The song has to be in charge with these things. You can't force it, you know. And as Damon tried to write some lyrics and tried to make it be about something and, you know, be more normal, and it just didn't work at all. So, you know, what works is, is what, you're, what you listen to. And fundamentally, people want a song that goes woohoo in the chorus. People want that. Who cares what the verse says? They wanted to go woohoo in the chorus. I mean, we've proved that. That's if, if if our career achieves nothing, it's uh, simply that. Don't worry, don't worry about the first. Just make the chorus go woohoo. So true. So it's it's. It, I mean, I mean, listen. When I first heard the song, that I I figured that would be the name of the song. Um, now, listen. At that time, when you were like, when you were a band, was it starting out as fun? I mean, I know all bands start out as fun, but were you looking to do it on a professional level, get signed and, and do world tours? Were you actually looking to do that before all this happened? Yeah, we were all very, very ambitious and we still are. So yeah, we all wanted to be stars, absolutely. I think very, very few people 
get that are successful that aren't willing to sacrifice almost everything to get there because the odds against it are, are so extraordinary you know at the time we were at the time we were starting out our record company said there was about a hundred thousand active bands in the uk at any one time and i think there's probably more now so what are the odds that out of that hundred thousand bands you're going to be the one that headlines glastonbury you know plays madison square garden what are the odds they're, they're really really stacked against you aren't they so you have to be have to be insanely ambitious i think to really get out of the traps and get to the, get to the first hurdle you know you mentioned something and i'd love to get your thoughts on this you mentioned that how it's competitive right get get you know get, getting to the level of success that where you are it's extremely competitive you know one out of a hundred thousand well today you have like a hundred thousand songs being uploaded daily like on spotify right on, yeah. on this on the streaming platforms does that even make any sense well there's always been a, a kind of background noise of music. You know, it's kind of been the bane of the music industry for a long time. How can you, how can you find the ones that are worth listening to out of all of the, of all of the stuff that isn't worth listening to? You know, it's by worth listening to, I mean, it's got some commercial potential. People are going to be prepared to spend money to listen to. That's what the music industry is interested in. Perhaps the artists themselves are interested in something else, but uh, hopefully they are. But uh, it's all that's always been the problem for the industry, you know, that there's been this background noise of music that has no commercial value at all. Um, I think the medium has just changed. That's all. You know, all of these, all of these hundreds of thousands of tracks that are being uploaded to Spotify were being sent on cassettes to record label bosses, to A and R people. You know, they were being uh, they were being played at clubs and pubs and bars all over the country. You know, so all of that was still there. It's it's just all kind of centralized, really. It's just kind of the opposite of what we thought the internet was going to do at the, the, the dawn of the dawn of it all. Really, we thought it was going to make the uh, make the whole industry more democratic and kind of give artists and fans direct contact with each other. But in fact, it's just spawned a whole new generation of middlemen, Spotify being the main offender, but there are plenty of others you know, who, who um, and also to and also too maybe you can figure this out. So the music labels generally were were basically superstar dependent. They needed a a couple of big acts, you know, a couple times a year to to really, you know, that that that's what they would really depend on. Well, these labels are no longer artist dependent, superstar dependent, and. And yet they're making more money than ever. So how 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 is a business making more money than ever when they're no longer even operating their core business like they did in the past? Yeah. Well, it's because they're not acting as the labels, you see. There's no one acting as the labels by and large now. The 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 existing labels are still superstar dependent and not their their business model was let's sign a hundred acts, EMI to sign a hundred acts every year across the across the megalopolis uh, in the on the assumption that uh, four or five of those would break through and go on to recoup, you know, uh, every year. So 
they were the superstars that they were superstar dependent on, you know, and they would, they would, uh, the, those four or five, they would throw the entire resources of the label behind, kind of forcing them up the career ladder so they could make their money back. The, the Spotify isn't acting like that. Spotify is acting as if every record shop in the 1990s was suddenly forced to become an HMV affiliate. Every single piece of vinyl, every single CD, every single T-shirt had to be sold through HMV. Well, HMV would have been a very, very rich company indeed, wouldn't they? Or Virgin or who, you know, whichever. That's what Spotify have done. They have uh, cornered the mark, cornered the streaming market. So now, not whatever label a band is signed to, they have to sell their product through Spotify. Well, uh, no wonder Spotify are getting very rich. And Spotify paying royalties. Sorry, I harp on about Spotify. I know, but they're they're not the only ones doing this. But uh, they are the market leaders in doing this. That the, the royalties they're paying are far far worse than uh, even the most. Uh, the, the, the worst kind of dinosaur record label used to sign their artists to. That's another reason they're making loads and loads of money. Oh, you mean the labels are making more money because of Spotify now is what you're saying? I know, Spotify are making money oh, because oh, of the royalties they pay on their streaming. Remember, they, they cream a large amount of the profits off the top and feed it through the... Uh, dividend mechanism to their labels before they have to account to the artists right so when you look at what they publish as their royalty rates you think well that looks that looks appalling but still not as appalling as i thought but then when you factor in the uh, the money they pay out the back of the out the back door via uh, via dividends to their shareholders who are also the labels you see oh right well that's why so so how would the okay so how would the labels now make more money? Then how would like the, the the big labels make more money off of Spotify than they did before off of the superstore artist? See, here's what I find extremely, extremely confusing. The labels are bolstering more profits now off of streaming from a platform that pays little royalties than they did before selling CDs, which were point to purchase off of superstar albums. I don't understand the economics, how you would make money more now off of streaming that pays less than superstar artists with, with point of purchase sales. Streaming pays less to artists, not to record labels. Streaming is set up to benefit the record labels disproportionately, far more than the uh, old record industry model was set up to benefit the record labels disproportionately. St the the overhead's very low with streaming. Nobody has to print bits of plastic. They don't have to own a massive, great record press. They don't have to own a fleet of trucks to get them to the shops. They don't have to own a shop that takes 50%. All of that is gone. Or, you know, you or I could collaborate on a track after this interview. We could upload it to Spotify and it would cost us absolutely nothing. And we would have exactly the same um, access to Spotify's arguably exactly the same access right. to spotify's customer base as emi would right. you know so uh it's cost us that the overheads are extremely low and the the record labels are getting paid twice the major labels this is not the the smaller labels smaller labels are struggling but uh still because their overheads are low i think that many are keeping their head above water i think that um 
yeah, so the, the, the major labels are getting paid twice. They own Spotify stock. And so when Spotify makes, uh, when Spotify pays a dividend, they get paid. But where does the dividend come from? That comes from the streaming revenues that they're getting in from their subscribers and from their, uh, and from their advertisers. That money should be going to the artists. But no, it's going uh, to via the, there's a, a, a creaming off the top via dividends going directly to the record labels before the uh, before the um, uh, uh, for the process of dividing it. You know, the official process of dividing between artists and record label takes place. So then, what's left after the dividends are paid goes to the uh, goes to to be split up under the terms of the agreements um spotify have also historically and who knows if they still do because they sign non-disclosure agreements with all the record labels have have uh, had to pay record labels for access to their catalogs and uh, i hear rumors that they've had to pay publishers too well again this is money that's going straight in the labels and publishers pocket that should have been going to artists but because um, it's not for a specific product, you know, it's just for access to a catalogue rather than for access to song two by Blur. It's not attributable to any particular song or any particular recording. And so it's not attributable to any particular artist. So the labels go, thank you very much. I'll have that. Thank you. Right. That's my money. Perfect. Another private jet, please. Oscar, if you could buy me one more of those. Yeah, no, I think you wrapped it up with that. I think you're right. And don't you, and are they also making money by literally, I mean, from, from all these other social media companies, like whether it's Facebook or YouTube or TikTok, it's like you pay us and you have access to all our catalog. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a pernicious and particularly awful music industry concept, but one that's been with us since the dawn of time. It's a it's a unattributable money that sloshes round the round the music industry. It's called euphemistically black box, um, black box money, black box royalties. It's it's money that's sloshing around that for some reason, by accident or design, or both, usually the uh, the rights holder, the rights owner, is not able or the rights. The, the, the label or the publisher is not able to attribute to a particular artist or a particular song. And so they simply keep it. And uh, the amounts of black box money sloshing around the industry would make your eyes water. Tens, hundreds of millions, maybe as much as a billion uh, pounds of black box money gets sloshing around a year. And this is money that musicians should be feeding their families and paying their mortgages with. And you know, there's there's so little reason why that concept should even exist now. It used to exist because in the up until the kind of eighties and computerization, everything was done on by hand. Companies had had a whole whole buildings full of offices with kind of card index systems saying which artists had to be paid on which um on, on uh, which song and on which uh, recording and the collecting societies had similar things. They had people rifling through punch card index system, well, not punch cards, but card index systems. And uh, it was just physically impossible as the industry grew post sixties 
to actually pay the right amount of money to the right people. It was just impossible. So things like blanket licenses grew up where, for example, in the UK, the BBC would just pay PRS tens of millions of pounds just to be able to use music. PRS would go, okay, thanks very much for that tens of million pounds. Well, who do we pay it to? It was black box money, um, you know, very controversial that it was even being received, let alone what they finally ended up doing with it. And, uh, you know, but by and large with the PRS, they gave it to publishers and the publishers would, uh, would say, well, we don't know whose it is. Never mind. We'll, we'll have that then. Thank you very much. And this is happening for, 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 you know, for legitimate reasons, perhaps in the 1970s, but there's absolutely no reason why that this should be happening now. It's trivial to find out what songs are being played on the radio and what songs are being sold. Aren't aren't you like glad that you didn't know all this before you started the band? <laughs> well, I learned all of this as a result of my band being ripped off. You see, in the very early days of my band, our manager took all of our money stole all of our, let's, let's say, say it as it is, stole all of our money and uh, declared himself bankrupt and so escaped the consequences of his nefarious crimes. So, um, you know, as a result of that, we then had an investigation. We hired forensic accountants to reconstruct our accounts to find out what he'd actually done. And uh, one thing, he, one of the ways he'd managed to loop the accounts was he'd come in to our rehearsal studio on a Friday afternoon and get us to sign blank checks. We were young, we were kids, you know, even then I thought, well, that's a bit, that's a bit off. Is that really how things work in the music industry? But anyway, when we got the checks back from the bank, a load of them said, pay cash 5,000 pounds and then had my signature on the bottom. And I resolved, I was never, ever going to get myself in that position again. So I started finding out how the music industry worked and uh, started turning up to the rather boring meetings with the accountant and the lawyers um, that I'd run a, run a mile rather than turn up to, you know, and, and made it my business to, to figure out how the industry worked. Now, on the height of your success, were you self-managing the band? No, no, we've never self-managed, no. Okay. But you at least knew how it worked. So when you did have a manager, like, you know, you knew the ins and outs. Yeah, I, I certainly did. I made it my business to do it. And so by and large, to this day, nobody will sign in the band or sign a contract for Blur unless it's got my signature on the scene, then you know I've read it. Well, the drummers are always the smartest in the band, right? I don't know. We've got some pretty smart people in my band. I'm not, not sure I'm even the top three. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you also ventured into law. I mean, right? I mean, what what... You know, again, what I really like about everything that you've done, you know, your very colorful background is they're all different, too. I mean, I mean, music, politics, law. I mean, you know, it's not really cohesive, which I love. So how did you end up getting into law? I started helping out at a, at a, a criminal defense firm in the east end of London um, by, a, by a weird um sequence of coincidences i uh I, it was suggested that i you know i was looking for something to do really and it was suggested by a lawyer friend of mine that i go and help out at this firm run by a friend of his they've been to law school together and 
they were they had a, a, a big case coming up and they thought it might um, the, the, the case may turn on some electronic evidence that had just been served which they didn't understand so I volunteered my services and I, I took this evidence big pile of a, a two pieces of paper about that big and I took that on and uh, made sense of it and uh, you know explained to the partners running the case what it all meant and what the prosecution were going to try and suggest by it so as a result of that they uh, offered me a job and uh, I started working there one day a week and then I started working there full time really somebody left and I kind of segued into their into their position and uh, absolutely loved it so that after working there for about a year I uh, decided I'd better train as a lawyer myself so I went back to law school I went back to school and uh, and uh, then qualified as a solicitor which is uh, there are two kinds of lawyers here the ones that uh, the ones that prepare the cases and the ones that present the cases in court I suppose is the sure rough division. Well, I qualified to do both but uh, anyway I qualified as a solicitor and uh, and practiced for a number of years doing that and it was great insanely stressful has to be said and the, uh, after a few years of practice the band got back together and so I carried on doing doing the two together for a while but it uh, I, I, I got burned out really so I had to choose one or the other and of course very few times when you're a when you're in when you're a, a lawyer do, do kind of girls throw their knickers at you generally it's only when you're on stage with Blur, does that happen? So it was a fairly easy choice. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, now, now, now this is kind of crazy. I mean, I'm not sure if you were prepared for this, but in July, you were playing a Wembley Stadium and yeah. you sold out like in minutes and you added a second date. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of, the, the idea had been floated quite a few years ago. Um, as would it, you know, would it be something we would be interested in doing? And we all said, sure, why not? And then one reason or another, the big reason, of course, being the pandemic, it just looked like it was, you know, it just kind of receded back into the background again as, you know, one of those nice ideas, but never mind. And then uh, last year, the start of the year, um, we were contacted again saying, well, it might, this might be possible. Would you be interested? And uh, we said, yeah, but, yeah, let us know. And then it was this kind of off on, is it happening? Is it not happening? And just when I was convinced it wasn't, you know, that was it and it actually wasn't going to happen. Um, suddenly I got a phone call saying, it's happening, it's happening. And the tickets have to go on sale on Friday. And uh, we better get a bill together and put a tour around it and all this kind of stuff. So um, there were some hoops to jump through. Um, but we jumped through them all and, you know, suddenly the, the, the gig was happening just as well, really, because the, the, some of the big newspapers in the UK had caught wind of this, you know, about five years after the, the uh, idea was first floated. But anyway, they had caught, finally caught wind of it. And that was just published a kind of big expose, Blur, a set to play Wembley, just at the time when we weren't, just at the time when we'd all decided, actually, it's not happening. So, uh, Anyway, we'll move on. It was like, oh, God, that's a bit embarrassing. But uh, yes, it did suddenly happen. And then 
sold out within within yeah within a very very short period of time, and then the, that's on the Saturday. The gig was on the Saturday, and then suddenly the gig that was happening on the Sunday was a sort of charity bash that the FA were putting on. That got cancelled, so Sunday was free. So then we got an equally even more bizarre phone call saying, uh, "Oh, there's now a space on the Sunday as well. Do you want to play a second night?" I mean, crazy. It's very exciting. I mean, so you're going to be playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people in the course of a weekend. Yeah, it's actually a seventy thousand in uh, 70,000 seats when you're putting on a rock show. So, uh, yeah, 150,000 possibly. Wow. That that is crazy. So, uh, I mean, so basically, and this is going to be blurred. I mean, there's, I mean, let let me ask you this. Like, did you, uh, what do you think connected the band um, to like the culture over the course of what, how many years did you come out? I mean, you've been in the band for at least 20 years, right? 35 years. Roughly. 35. Yeah. So, so, so what do you think that the band offered where you could do this 30 years later? It was it your authenticity. Was it the fact that you just wrote great songs? You didn't care about trends. Like, what do you think that one, maybe it's not one ingredient, but what do you think it is? I think fundamentally it is about songs. The songs are good. And that, in my experience, if you get the songs right, everything else falls quite naturally into place. Second, I think that we, uh, we, we tried not to do the same thing twice. So we tried not to write the same song twice, tried not to make the same album twice. Um, you know, constantly evolved, constantly looking forward, not looking back. So people just didn't just get bored of the thing, you know, you know, people, there's some bands for the, find a winning formula and they bash away at it for the rest of their career and good luck to them. But uh, we've always kicked against that and tried to, you know, I'm sure we probably, had we not, we'd probably be a much bigger band. Had we just written Park Life or Song 2 for the rest of our career, you know, 400 variations on Song 2, we'd probably be the biggest band on in the universe. But uh, right, yeah, you so would. It's probably self-defeating that we've been like that. But it, you know, it has it has given us a, a quite a privileged position. You know, a career where we're pretty much free to do what we want. You know, the record companies sits back, very happy to take whatever album we make and and run with it. People trust us because we've you know released some good songs to 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 uh, not mess them about and you know promote things properly and you know play play shows that people want to go to and that kind of thing so you know we're in quite we're, we're in a very you know I couldn't really be in a better position I don't think I mean, after 35 years we're not the biggest band in the world but we're the freest I think that's a great that's great that's the biggest band but the freest and that's where you want to be right if you don't have the independence and that creative independence, I mean, is it even really worth it? So m- most importantly, you have, you know, a new album coming out January 20th. Um, this is the first time you stepped up to the microphone as a singer. I mean, I'm a, you know, you being a drummer. So now what, what inspired you? And by the way, it's called Radio Songs. So what inspired you, you know, to make this new album? Well, I've always been a songwriter. That's been something I've I've done ever since I was a kid. But I think uh, two things, two things, the stars aligned in two ways to, to bring this album about. 
The first was I got the confidence to do it because the last kind of seven or eight years I've been working as a film composer and a TV score composer. And the uh, I've been I've been successful at that. My scores have done well. I've scored some uh, some hit shows and hit films, and uh, and that gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, and it gave me a recording studio full of equipment that I could use to do it with as well. Um, so as well as that, the confidence. Uh, I also had the space. Uh, the the pandemic was an absolutely appalling experience. From head to toe, but what it did give me was uh, uh, um, two lockdowns. The first of which I was still making film music, but the second of which the film industry had ground to a halt, and I had nothing to do. And I was just looking ahead, you know, the weeks, potentially months of lockdown, wondering how I was going to fill my time. And uh, the producer Leo Abrahams and I decided to work together at some point, and we decided that was the point. We thought we would. Um, at least do some preparatory work on my album during that lockdown in the hope that when the lockdown finished, you know, we could get together and make the record. As uh, luck would have it, six weeks later, the album was finished and that, you know, working separately in our own studios turned out to be a very efficient way of working. So uh, what I missed out on was the ability to, you know, bounce ideas off somebody in the same room. So that's, I think, quite important. I wouldn't like to miss out on that permanently, but it didn't mean two people working in two studios could work twice as quickly. Now, do you plan to, now Now, this new album, like, do you plan to do like a promo run or like how do you plan to roll this out? Yeah, I was going to spend the summer doing festivals, but uh, of course I'm spending the summer doing festivals with another project now. So um, hopefully I'll do, I've got a show on Friday in East London for the release of the album. Hopefully I'll manage to slot a couple of festival appearances in over this summer. Um, but I guess now the main promo is going to go to next year. I'm going to try and write another album, write and record another album uh, this year, release it in the spring of next year, and then um, to as many shows as I humanly can uh, over the course of next year, because that's one of the points of the album is that I want to be able to play live when I choose to, not just when uh, three other people choose to. Now, when you say play shows, do you mean like like just like clubs and venues, those types of shows? Um, festivals, certainly, and then whatever else I can get. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult time for new projects at the moment. You know, the, 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 the festivals and the big gigs are doing quite well. You know, as Blur, as Blur has shown, if you've got a, if you've got two hours of greatest hits and, uh, you know, there's a public appetite, you can play the big places. But for many, many newer projects and smaller acts are finding, the, finding it quite difficult in the UK. Brexit hasn't been kind to the music industry. Um, and whereas it used to be easy to tour Europe, um, it's now very difficult. So... So uh, many UK acts are finding they're restricted really to playing in the UK. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the live scene here has gone under during the pandemic. They just couldn't survive. So it's quite a difficult time. Um, so we should just have to see what we can do. But uh, the, yeah, the festival scene is thriving in Europe at the moment. So I definitely want to play some festival shows and uh, and to see how widely I can take the project out, really. Great. 
Well, Dave, I mean, again, thanks for coming on. Um, again, January 20th, Radio Songs, new album. Can't wait to stream it. Of course, it's going to be on Spotify, right? Of course. <laughs> of course. There's no, they, they've cornered the market. You have no choice. <laughs> Who else would it be? But um, again, Dave, thanks for coming on. And um, like I said, I, I, I love chatting, love your interesting background. And um, I can't wait to hear your new music. Great. Cheers, Dave. Cheers, Dave. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye.